Hello everyone and welcome back to the Chalk Talk Podcast with Doug Farrar, sponsored by Walter Football and Liskow Consulting. Um, and today we have a very interesting podcast for you. Uh, Steve Palazzolo of Pro Football Focus and College Football Focus as well, uh, a new entry into the football data business. Um, Steve has been, uh, Steve is a former minor league pitcher and he's approximately 12 feet tall and he's been with Pro Football Focus for a while. And Steve, if I'm correct, you're kind of, are you the mastermind behind college football focus? Is that really your baby? Uh, I don't want to take full credit for it because obviously so many people, you know, you go into to making it happen, but I've just been the one behind the scenes pushing it for a while with, with Neil, our founder, owner, um, who never really loved college football, and I always did, and I said, Neil, we've got to do this, we've got to do this, and we finally got to the point where we have the resources to, to make it happen, so... It's certainly not my doing, but I'd say it was more my urging to, uh, to get it done. Well, let's start in a nutshell. For people who don't know, um, what pro football focus is and then go into how college football focus. Because this, to me, I mean, what you guys have done is kind of, because I've been with Football Outsiders since 2005 in various iterations, so I was familiar with, you know, data sourcing for pro football. You guys came in and did different stuff with it. And by the way, there's room for everybody for, you know, we're not Coke and Pepsi here. Um, but the college football focus thing is just fascinating. So start, for people who don't know, what is PFF? And then how did CFF come about? So PFF, our initial intention, or Neil's initial intention when he started the company was to grade every player on every play and, uh, and not just grade and not just add stats to it, but actually grade how well they performed on each play, how good was the throw by the QB, how good was the coverage by the cornerback, um, how good was this the block of that block, and actually putting uh, numerical values to that um, and ignoring technique along the way. So did you make a good block, yes or no, rather than uh, did you look good doing it or did you have the right technique? And, um, so that was the initial intention, and then as we went, we discovered that um, we had a lot of data that we collected beyond the grading, and we continued to add to that. So I think it's almost two parts. It's the grading of the players, um, and then it's also the data collection stats, things like drops, passes, things like hurries, uh, things like run concepts now, um, and, that's, and then charting where everybody lines up on the field. So now we can pull out uh, offensive and defensive formations, defensive alignments, um, how many players are in the box, just any number of things that come out of all of the data. But the initial intention was to grade the players, I think all the stack that became a byproduct of that, um, have a good way to just add some context to the grades and vice versa. And that, so college football focus, and I, I know we talked about this a little bit at the Combine, um, basically you took the 2014 season with your army of charters and you – charted every game of every every FBS game of the 2014 season. Is that correct? That's correct. It was 872 games, I believe. Just it included every game oh. in FBS. I know. So there's, there's 256 in the NFL, 872 in college, and we took, um, as far as the grading goes, we only have about 14 guys that do it, uh, 10 guys full-time. So it was, it was quite a process. I mean, our entire season was involved, you know, we'd do the NFL for a few days, and then it was, okay, guys, go get as many college games done as you can for the rest of the week. And then uh, we had a deadline of the Super Bowl for our NFL team customers, and we said, we're going to get it done by the Super Bowl. That's our our goal. And we hit January 1st, and we were 
um, a little ways away from that, so we had to, you know, crank them out in January. So uh, we, we finished all of it, but it was uh, it was about 10 to 14 guys that do the grading, up to 70 other guys that will do what we call player participation, which is just uh, um, more objective, just charting of where guys line up on the field and a general idea of what they do, drop into coverage, uh, rush the passer. But um, when we did it, we decided we're, we're not going to do it halfway. It doesn't make sense to just do the SEC or to just do Power 5 conferences. We wanted to go all the way. We wanted to do, um, unlock some of those those good players from the MAC and the Sun Belt. And, um, we did every game that FBS teams played against FCS teams as well. So you can see, yeah, we've got some information on some of those guys. We did the Senior Bowl. We did the East West Shrine game. So 872 total games. It was quite the undertaking for the staff that we had, but uh, also quite rewarding once we saw the results. I want to pop an anvil just thinking about it. How, mo- how long does it take an average pro football focus charter to chart a game, pro or college? So each game will get about 20 hours of um, man, 20 man hours, I would say, but there are multiple processes that go involved that are involved. What I do is the grading, um, it, it, it's pretty much half grading, half collection. So my part of the process is probably more in that six to eight maybe nine or ten hour range depending on the game. I'm a little bit slower than most. We have some guys that can crank out games in four or five hours at times, but I'd say most of the grading and analysis will be in that six to eight hour range. Um, some of the college games are definitely a lot longer than NFL games, which uh, was a factor. And then the other part of the process is that player participation process, which we have um, two sets of eyes will do, and there's probably in a similar maybe five, six, seven hour range for each of those processes just charting where everybody lines up on the field and that's before we even get into our our grading getting reviewed uh, multiple times over so i'd say 20 to 25 man hours per game um throughout the season and how big is your staff overall um so there's i think it's 16 of us that are full-time and uh only 10 of us or 10 or 11 of us are doing um, the grading part of it, I think it's 14 total. Um, so some part-timers that are doing the grading and then up to 70 part-timers doing the, the player participation, just where did, where did guys line up on the field. Right. Um, I'm hoping to expand that this year so that we don't have to uh, kill ourselves in the month of January. We're trying to get things done in a much more timely manner for next year. Yeah, well, and it's you have kind of an angel investor in Chris Collinsworth now. How has that changed things? Yeah, that's been a big. It's been a big factor. You know, he helped out. Um, joined the company last summer, just before the season started. He was instrumental in pushing us through because you know, he found us because he, in the back of his mind, he said, "Man, I really need um, quality information to to help me with my own film study, with my own uh, knowledge of the NFL." And I think it was something he wanted to do in the back of his mind until he realized that we existed, and then ended up contacting Neil and, you know, they're, they're, they're hilarious together. They're two uh, very similar personalities, uh, very similar passion uh, for the game from both of them. So, so they meshed uh, right off the bat. So it's been uh, just a great addition for, for what we have. And he really helps push through the college data. And I was just watching film with him last week. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun sitting down, getting his perspective and then him kind of learning from us too and hearing how we look at the game. So it's, it's a, it's been a good addition, and we're still uh, learning a lot from each other. Well, and kudos to him, because a lot of these guys, as we've seen on TV, just kind of coast through it for years and years. So that, that's that's really cool. 
Um, yeah. and I've, I've met Neil, by the way, is Neil Hornsby, for those who don't know, the founder of PFF. And I've met Neil a few times, and so I assume Collinsworth is pretty hyperactive, too, because I know Neil is. Yeah. I told you, they're, they, they're funny together, because they're, they're very similar. They've got, they work hard, they love the game, and, and you can see it. And it, I have to say that about Chris, you know, just being around him. He's certainly not a guy that coasts. And I think you see that in his broadcast. You know, he has a lot of good information, and he, he understands the game well because he puts in so much time and preparation. So he's, him and Neil have definitely been a good fit to, together. So I know you... It- through PFF, uh, the years you've been around, you've had you've established relationships with a lot of NFL teams. You provide data to a greater or lesser degree to teams who are more or less interested. How has the NFL's response to college football focus been? Because I would imagine this would be like the gold rush to a scouting department. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we started it late in the process, so we've definitely had some interest from teams. We have had a few teams that have that bought the entire package. Um, I think next year is going to be even bigger. This year was more, we called it a proof of concept year, where we could say, okay, can we, can we get this done in a timely manner? And I think we showed that we could, and we gave it the same exact um, effort level, the same detail that we put into the NFL. So I think we established that we could do it, that we could uh, you know, take on such a, such a crazy task of, of watching every single play in college football and adding so much data to it. But that was... Uh, the first thing, you know, a lot of teams have taken to it. I think, it, um, you know, again, when I was watching film last week, we were doing it like we encourage NFL teams to do, which is say, okay, if you want to watch a player, I think the old way of doing it is, you know, let's watch four games, maybe four games against this best competition. We're just going to watch every play for these four games or six games or whatever you pick out. I think the value of what we've been able to add uh, to the scouting process has been saying, okay, let me just watch this guy's positive and negative plays because there are a lot of plays where a guy just doesn't do a whole lot. You know, the wide receiver on the backside of a run play or various things like that that we just call average or expected in our system. So if it's a zero grade, uh, we said, okay, let me watch this player and just watch his positives and negatives. And all of a sudden we can get through maybe 150 plays, 200 plays of a player um, in his entire season and all of the relevant plays of his season rather than the only 20 plays or 30 plays or 40 plays that you find in a four-game set. So um, just from an efficiency standpoint, I think it's helped a lot um, pointing uh, scouting departments in the right direction as far as which plays to watch. And it's not even that they need to completely agree with our assessment of each of those plays, but if we graded the play positively or negatively, chances are there's something to do there. So I think just from that um, starting point, it's, it's been a huge help, and uh, a lot of teams are seeing that benefit. Because, I mean, I know this happens to me. I would imagine it happens, I think it happens to a lot of evaluators, both, you know, on teams and, and those of us who do it in the media and people who just do it for fun. You become this victim of highlight bias, positive or negative, where you see three plays in one game or five plays in two games, and you go, oh, my God, that's what this guy is. And the stuff that's counter to your original uh, inclination doesn't really register because you already have a guy sort of predetermined. I think we, we, we try and work against that as we learn more and we learn that it's not just that one truth that is the truth about a player, but having the full data, being able to link that to their tape, I mean, it, it really does open it up to more of a reality as opposed to, well, I saw this guy against this team and that's pretty much where I'm at. It, uh, it's huge. I mean, it's absolutely truth. And then and then you can turn on ESPN and maybe see the same three or four clips of a guy, and that's ingrained even more. Like, 
we were joking with some of the ESPN guys in the past when Ryan Tannehill was coming out. They showed the same, you know, the same pass of him throwing on the run, you know, for for a month straight, and all of a sudden it's like, well, Tannehill definitely throws well on the run yeah. because you've just seen the big play over and over again. So the highlight bias is definitely real, and you know, we see it internally too, where I'll finish a game. And I'll, in my head, I'll think, wow, this guy played really well. I know that he did. I, I saw it. All his good plays stood out to me. I remember that. And then the, the game gets run through the system and the grades pop out. And all of a sudden, it's like, hey, wait, he did not grade as well as I thought he should have. And it's because he's even going through the game, um, mind played a little you know, tricks on me. I forget some of his bad plays or I choose to ignore them or the good plays just um, maybe during crunch time or they really stood out, whatever it might be. So I think the system gives us those checks and balances, and then the value of having every single play um, evaluated equally rather than just four games or, or just those plays that stick out. I mean, we, I talked about this with uh, Josh Norris recently. He brought the fact that Andres Pete of Stanford, there's one play in the Notre Dame game where he just gets bull rushed and pancaked. And I think everybody looks at that one play and saying, well, he can't do this or he can't do that because this one guy at Notre Dame bull rushed him. And it's like, well, he still only gave up nine pressures all year and you know, he still played 900-something snaps. I mean, we start to, uh, you know, paint a picture in our head of what a player is based off a handful of plays, and I think our system helps to uh, temper some of that and, and, and add a little bit more consistency to the process rather than focusing on the highs and lows. Well, this is what I love about CFF because all my time with FO, what I eventually learned is that you, it's to me it's half stats, it's half tape, and when the two don't agree, that's when you go deeper. But I think if you have one without the other, you're just you're not you're not getting the complete picture. Ergo, you're not doing your job. Ergo, you're not telling the full story. So it's it's really exciting that you guys are doing this. Now this is not available publicly because of the interest from NFL teams. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we we look at our, our PFF NFL product, and we love it, and we love the fact that we can share it with fans, but. We guess we've got a lot of feedback from teams who are potential customers who say, you know what, I, I paid the $27 for your package. And this is, you know, it's, it's worth a little bit more to NFL teams, but they pay the $27 for our NFL package. Um, granted, what we sell to them is much, much more than what's on the website. I mean, it's, it's the entire database and the ability to tie it to their video system and do all sorts of stuff. But when NFL teams are saying, yeah, I subscribe to the website, I read your articles about the top three agents and we actually use that information. Um, it, it made us rethink what we do with the college product and said, okay, we need to um, keep this available for for NFL teams first and then um, sprinkle in some of the information for fans as we've done on the website, which has been free, a lot of our stats and information that we've uh, been posting the last week or so. Uh, but the, the, the grades and all of the stuff is mostly exclusive to, to NFL teams only at this point. Before we get to individual players, just one last question about the process. In a general sense, how did doing this affect or change your notion of what it is? Because we, we, we're not scouts, but we talk about scouting as sort of a shorthand. So I'm just going to use scouting even though we're not scouts. And yes, people, we understand that we're not scouts, blah, blah, blah. How did it change the way you do this and you in an individual sense and PFF in a global sense, how did this project change how you, because what we're doing now is we're, we're not watching college guys to analyze them. We're analyzing their transition to the NFL. How did that change your process individually and PFF's global process? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, 
with only one year of data, it's going to be tough for us to say we know that this translates to the NFL. Uh, we have an idea, but we don't know 100%. I'm looking forward to when we've got four, five, six years of data, and we can say historically we know that this particular attribute or skill set is going to translate um, based off our system and things like that. So it's funny. For years we said we're not scouts, and we're not. But we changed our tune a little bit in recent years, and we said, you know what, we're going to we do a different type of scouting because we are grading the players. We are saying, did you do your job or did you not? Did you make a good block or did you not? So we started to call it performance-based scouting, um, which is certainly different. It's not, is he bending his knees? Does he threaten the edge? Does he, you know, bend the edge? And uh, various scouting terms like that. But I think it's a form of scouting where it's, okay, did you do your job or did you not? And we're just going to quantify it and just put numbers to it and kind of add it all up in the end. Um, so I think there's an element to that. And then we go back individually and we kind of you know, put our scouting hats on and say, okay, this cornerback graded very well, but he graded very well. Why? And, and does this translate to the NFL? Does he, have, does he have the change of direction and, you know, the quickness and the long speed and a lot of the stuff that scouts do look at? And then, as you said, we try to tie the tape to the numbers and when they match up, it's awesome. And when they don't, it's like, okay, now what? what's going to happen? Is it going to be his athleticism that, that stands out over his production? Will his production stand out over his lack of athleticism? I think we're going to learn a lot in the next couple of years. But as far as changing the process, I think it's when you're watching a game, it's, it's trying to take in the context of the level of competition and what exa- where the grades actually come from. So when you're watching... Grant Hedrick from Boise State, who graded very well, you say, okay, he's playing the Mountain West. He's, maybe he's got a few easier throws, but you're not going to see in the NFL. Um, we have to take that into consideration when we're projecting him uh, to the NFL. So um, when we grade the NFL, we essentially look at everyone as, as somewhat equal. You know, they're NFL players going up against NFL players. Clearly, there are different uh, you know, ranges of skills within that, but we treat them all as NFL players. Whereas college, I think, intuitively, you have to look and say, okay, there's a wide range of ability here. We have to see which things are going to translate best. And I know you guys don't adjust for opponents in a data sense, but I imagine that goes into your grades a lot. If it's, you know, if, if a cornerback is winning against Valdosta State, it's not quite the same as if he's doing it against yeah. Oregon. Yeah, so our grade itself does not reflect the level of competition, but we certainly encourage our fans and users, especially on the NFL side, to use context. And I think one of the examples that Emil always loves to use is Robert Quinn, who graded off the charts in our system two years ago. And But people look at him and say, well, it doesn't do well against good tackles. And Joe Saley from San Francisco shut him down twice. And, and it was true. So you look at Quinn and you say, okay, he dominated average to poor left tackles. But there's value in that, too. You know I mean? Because there are a lot of average to poor left tackles in the NFL. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. There's, there's some bad tackles. You want to win those games, right? You want to win them if you're the Rams. So having a guy like Quinn that dominates average to four left tackles is extremely valuable. Um, and then on the other sense, you know, if, if you do beat Joe Thomas, who's the best pass-protecting left tackle, like if you beat him for like two hurries, what does that mean you're going to do against the bad tackle? Does that mean you're going to beat him for six hurries? I mean, how do you, uh, you know, how do you quantify that? So I think it's a big, a big, big challenge. And I think you just have to uh, use the context any way you see fit. Uh, Quinn being an example of, okay, we know he beats up on the bad guys, but there's value in that, and maybe he's going to get shut down against the Staley's and the Thomas's of the world. But you just have to accept that and, 
and that, and that's what uh, builds the picture of the type of player that he is without necessarily changing the overall grade. Yeah. Well, let's uh, individual players and, and positions. Let's start with quarterbacks because that's what we always do. And um, although your stuff is proprietary for teams, you do have a bunch of articles up. You guys have been quite voluminous on, on college football focus, which you can find at profootballfocus.com. Um, and we get into deep passing, uh, performance under pressure, play action, and time to throw. And I think the well, the thing that stands out to me, and I'm, I mean, in the interest of not making this a five-hour podcast, which I could easily do because this really fascinates me, um, I'm going to go with the bigger names against the power fives. And you know, sorry, I, I, I'm a small school guy as much as anyone, but. When I look at deep passing, and when I was doing a report for SI on Garrett Grayson of Colorado State, I was thinking, okay, you know, this guy, he gets it on a different level than a lot of these guys. He, he, you know, he'll go to his third read, he'll look off to safety. Um, what I was surprised to see, because it really didn't mesh necessarily with what I saw on tape, is that he is your uh, second, as far as... Uh, I'm not sure how you, I'm looking at how you parse this. Your second rated uh, deep passer, 72 attempts, 33 completions, 1,237 yards, 14 touchdowns, uh, three interceptions, 52.8% accuracy. What were your thoughts on Grayson overall? Because it, it seemed, you know, I think the perception of him is a lot of tools, kind of a low ceiling guy. Does the deep passing thing sort of open that up, or was it more a product of who he was playing? I, I think there's elements of both, and I, I call it, well, I think Richard Higgins was a big factor. Yeah. Is, I think he's a sophomore receiver in Colorado State. He looks like Higgins is just playing at a completely different speed from everyone, especially in the Mountain West. I mean, I think that guy's a potential first-round wide receiver uh, next year and the following season, so I think that's a huge factor, uh, the fact that Higgins could just get behind the defense. And, and Higgins was actually outstanding after the catch on screen and various things like that as well. But um, I think when you look at deep passing numbers, um, even though it's a quarterback stat, I think there are more external factors involved in deep passing stats than maybe some others. So you've got to factor in the wide receiver himself. And I think the further the ball goes down the field, the more the receiver is actually involved. Um, in the results of the play. So the fact that we're just posting the stats, which are just results of the play, these are just passes beyond 20 yards, and these are the stats. Um, there can be underthrown, terrible passes that are caught. There can be perfect throws that are dropped. There can be busted coverages that are just gimmies. Um, so the stats, I don't think, always tell the entire story. So I'd say the wide receiver has something to do with it. The coverage has something to do with it. But I thought Grayson did a pretty good job of getting the ball to Higgins down the field. Um, for the most part. And, and the, the thing about translating that now is will we have a receiver like Higgins that's so much better than everyone else on the field? So I think that's where you might look at his numbers and say, okay, they're a little bit inflated because he's playing with the, with the wide receiver that's better than everyone else. And, um, but overall, I think there was some good. I mean, there was some good in Grayson. You, you discussed it. I think there was some some good things to play with, and he just had the benefit of having one of the nation's best receivers. Yeah, and also playing games with a, a bunch of crap cover three shells, which will not happen in the NFL. Yeah. That's a whole different story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Mariota versus Winston debate, I've I've sort of been in the Mariota corner all along, and it's, it's funny when you go back and read scouting reports on Aaron Rodgers. Everyone was talking about he was in this dink offense, he was in this you know passing game that was gimmicky, he can't do this, he can't do that, and he sat three years and then he became Aaron Rodgers. And 
your your numbers on Mariota in a number of areas, um, in in some ways matched with my tape study, and in other ways just enlightened me into different things. He was number four in deep passing. Uh, for those who, who for those of you who think he's Alex Smith, check this out: sixty four attempts over twenty yards, thirty completions, two drops, eleven hundred and seventeen yards, eighteen touchdowns, two interceptions, fifty uh, percent completion rate. You go to under pressure. Uh, he was uh, 31 sacks, uh, 26.3% of the time he was pressured, five touchdowns, one interception. Now, the thing I want to talk to you about is the play action percentage, 53.8, um, by far the highest in the NCAA, 27 touchdowns, three interceptions, and a lot of this was kind of that slice play action where it's just it's sort of a half read and then you, yeah. you throw a quick screen. But he had uh, 2,711 yards and 11.1 yards per attempt, which I assume leads the NCAA. 137.5 quarterback rating. It, I don't know if you know this or if you kind of have an aggregate number. What was the average play-action percentage in the NFL last year? Uh, the average percentage of usage, I think, is right around 22 or 23%. And Alex Smith led, I think, around, around 34 Then you have guys like Philip Rivers who are using it only 11% of the time. So, yeah, the fact that Mariota was up over 50% is insane when compared to the NFL. And then, as you said, it's kind of that half play action. His eyes are down the field reading. And, um, you know, it's, it's almost like a token take at times, but we're charting it as, as is because the defense has to respect it still. So uh, it's going to be a big adjustment for him because he's not going to be, I'm assuming he's not going to be in a system that's going to use play action 54% of the time. But um, we could honestly discuss Mario and Winston for two hours probably. But I think you're right on as far as he does, he does a lot of good things. I mean, he, he works through progressions better than most people think. Yep. Um, he works to the backside post and dig. That's kind of like his staple throw, I would say. That just he hits three or four times a game that it, it's – Pretty impressive, but um, and then the deep passing, and again, I think the deep passing deep context because we're looking at Oregon system. There's all this misdirection. There's safeties on a string, linebackers on a string, running around in circles, and a lot of those throws are easier. Um, you know, they they open up on the, you know they take the bubble and go down the field, or they're you know just working off the play and action and, and opening things up. So there's a lot of easier deep throws that day, but. I think the underrated part of Mariota's game is what he does at the intermediate level, especially when he does work through progressions and, and works back to the middle of the field. It's, it's some impressive stuff, and he does it uh, without putting the ball in harm's way. Uh, the interception totals are certainly indicative of how well he takes care of the football as a thrower. Um, the one thing that stood out, I think, from the signature stance is how often he takes stacks when pressured. So this is on plays where there's pressure, what, how, what, what percentage of those turn into sacks. He's at the bottom half of the, in the nation. So he takes more sacks than most when pressured. Um, and I think you look at Jameis, who's on the other end of that, he takes fewer sacks than most when pressured. But I think you see that in their play where Jameis is more likely to force the ball when he's under pressure and just find a linebacker open, which is obviously not good. Whereas Mariota will um, try to make something happen with his legs, and he gets into trouble at times because he's had a few pretty bad fumbles when he's tried to do too much. So I think from a skill set standpoint, it's just an interesting comparison between the two where they both uh, get into trouble when pressured and you know might you know put the ball in harm's way to turn it over. They just do it in different ways. Virginia's will just avoid the sack, throw the coverage. Mariota might try to do a little bit too much, and he's, he's fumbles more than he probably should have. 
Well, getting to Winston real quick before we move on to running backs, because again, I'm trying to keep this under five hours. Um, <laughs> um, and I know, and, and the reason I want to ask you this specifically because you were you made it to the minor leagues as a pitcher, so you know about the fact that you you know your legs are the source of your power as a thrower and. The thing I noticed about Winston through the 2014 season, and certainly, you know, I did this long article charting both Winston and Mariota and their combine throws. To me, he has so much faith in his upper body torque, which is very impressive. Um, I don't see his upper and lower body working together. Um, he, I mean, the, the, my pro comp is Jay Cutler because he, I mean, right down to those stupid ass fadeaway jumper throws. I think it's that part of it's a mentality that he can make every throw, and I've seen a lot of quarterbacks come into the NFL and be broken of that. I'm not as concerned about that. Um, what I am concerned about is the fact that I think he needs kind of a complete mechanical overhaul, and as a guy who has at a very high level had to align his upper and lower body to throw uh, in a way that a sport requires. I'm interested in your take on just his mechanics because I think his mechanics are a mess. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I saw Winston first. I, I really watched him in depth in 2014, this past year. And that's the, the first thing I really watched. Obviously, I've seen him in 2015, but not in depth. And I did notice that. I, I saw his, I thought his front thinking, um, was you know, overstride. His front knee was really uh, more bent than he would like. I think that threw him off balance a lot. Um, so I was interested when I went back to 2013. Um, I didn't see it as much, especially early on. It almost looked like a, like a comfort level. Like you know, last year it was 2013. He was a freshman. I think he was, you know, playing within the system a little bit more. Um, to me, it just looked like mechanically he's capable uh, of being on point. But for some reason, he took a step back in 2014. And again, we could discuss him forever. My big thing with him is. Why did he take a step back in 2014? Because when I watched the 2013 tape and I actually did go back and grade it, he was off the charts. I mean, the 2013 James Winston was so much better than 2014 James Winston. Um, it shows, I think, what he's capable of. But I think it's a big concern when you say, okay, why does this guy take a step back? Because I don't think he played like a first-round pick this past year. But he's been supposedly locked into this top spot the entire time, which... Um, didn't make a ton of sense to me until I went back to 2013, and I didn't see as many mechanical issues. And I saw him um, not take as many chances into coverage, and I saw him make ridiculously good throws down the field at intermediate level. So I could see why he should be the top pick, but I want to know why did he take that big step back in year two. Yeah. Moving to running backs, and one guy that really shows up, and, and a guy I like too, one guy that shows up in your signature uh, for elusive rating, which is um, yards after contact, missed tackles, is, uh, I mean, the guy at the top of the list is Todd Gurley. We expect that. Todd Gurley is on a different planet than the rest of these guys. Um, but Josh Robinson from Mississippi State, tell us about him, because he's uh, second in elusive rating. He's second in elusive rating versus Power 5. Um, what did you see from him? He's, he's just tough to tackle. I mean, the elusive rating sums it up. He's uh, listed at 5'9", 215. just has that Maurice Jones group type of body. Um, guys bounce off of him. He, he makes guys miss. He did it a little bit in the passing game, too. Um, you think not as many attempts as some of these other guys. Uh, only 190 attempts and uh, had enough uh, receptions and, and rushes. So um, he's also you know fresh coming into the NFL. But he was impressive every time we saw him. He made a lot of guys miss and picked up a lot of yards after contact. 
Yeah, uh, breakaway percentage, no surprise here that Tevin Coleman of Indiana and Melvin Gordon are the, are the top two guys. Um, I noticed breakaway percentage versus power five opponents, Todd Gurley is fourth. I mean, we know about the injury. I don't. I, we all kind of throw the suspension out. That's a whole different. But the the ankle injury in 2013, the knee injury now. Putting that aside, is he just on a different level as far as running backs in this draft class? It's interesting. I think statistically he was in certain aspects. When when we went back and rewatched one of our analysts who uh, actually was a former uh, Division three running back. Um, he had the running backs, and he went through, and he actually liked Melvin Gordon a little bit better than Gurley, not by a whole lot, but he had them both uh, very close. So I think in his mind, uh, Gurley's not necessarily the shoulders above. Some of our other analysts uh, do have Gurley uh, well above Gordon. I, I like Gurley a lot. Yeah, I don't know that Gurley is the Adrian Peterson-type prospect. I, I don't know many guys that, that are, but, uh, you know, again, our – one of our analysts really thought that Gurley and Gordon were similar, and I think it's you know some of our analysts actually like Gurley a lot better than Gordon. So I think it's we've we've been back and forth on it, and I, I think it's fair to say that they're a one A one B at the top with you know Gurley's injury certainly uh, helping Gordon's case for for the top spot. Yeah, definitely. Um, receivers, moving to the receivers here. Looks like you guys like Deont- uh, Devontae Parker a lot. Yards per route run, yards per route run versus Power 5 teams. Um, what were your thoughts on the receiver class overall? Who stood out to you? What, who, who really showed up in your stats and that was backed up with tape? A lot of them. I mean, the more we watch this receiver class internally, all of our analysts are up in that maybe eight, nine type uh, receivers that could be first-round type players. I mean, we all love this class. Uh, I, I love Parker because he's a big guy that can make plays down the field. He can make things happen after the catch. And I think he's a really good route runner. I think, um, you know, some people question his route running. We've talked about his releases off the line. Um, Sam Watson, one of our analysts who went in-depth with the receivers, said he only has one move off the line, but it works every time. Uh-huh. So I think, you know, it's, it's pretty funny. He stutters that move, but it always works. And... He, he doesn't. He moves so well for a big guy. Plus, has that ability to make those plays downfield. As we said, QB deep passing numbers are often at the mercy of the receiver going up against the quarterback. I think Parker's going to help out his quarterback, whoever it is. So I love Parker. I actually think he's got a chance to be the best receiver in this class. Even though um, you know Sam agreed that Amari Cooper he thinks is the best receiver in this class. I'm, I'm with him on Cooper. I thought. I thought Cooper was the best player on the field every game this season for Alabama. I thought he should have won the Heisman um, because they ran the offense through him and he produced, whether they were running screens, slants, go routes, didn't matter. Um, he got open and, and made plays. And I, I really like Cooper a lot. I think Kevin White, I don't think is necessarily in Cooper's range, but has potential to be. When I look at White against Parker, I look at White as more of a guy that accelerates out of routes rather than Parker, who creates separation with his shiftiness, again, for a big guy. So I think White has that, that special burst. Um, he, just has to, he just has to develop a little bit more because they didn't, you know, they used him only on one side of the field for the most part, only yeah. ran a handful of routes, but has a ton of potential. And then, I mean, this class is deep, man. You can get Devin Smith from Ohio State. When I finally saw him on tape, and his deep passing numbers were off the charts. He had over 700 yards on deep passes alone, but 
he only had 33 catches, but he looks capable of winning in multiple areas that Ohio State didn't even explore. And he looks like he's just running routes at a completely different speed from everyone else. And, um, you know, I think to me the wide receiver class is more about um, skill sets and styles that are going to fit multiple offenses around the league. So if you want a guy that can go up and win contested catches, you, you might look at Jalen Strong. If you want a guy that can do a little bit of both, it's Devontae Parker. You know, Amari Cooper from a route running standpoint. Kevin White from an outside deep ball, and intermediate ball standpoint. Devin Smith as a deep threat. Um, so there's just so many different types of players, and I like a lot of them. Nelson Aguilar, another guy, really good route runner, really good after the catch. I've been, on, that, I've been on the Nelson Aguilar train for a while. Yeah, he's he's probably underrated in this class because there are some guys that are bigger than him, some guys that are faster than him, but he just produces and gets open and, and makes things happen. It's really a fun class. and um, Again, I wouldn't be surprised if six, seven, eight guys uh, went in the first round out of these wide receivers. Uh, Jalen Strong to me is funny. I watched, I think, five, five or six games. And what I wrote in my scouting report was when this guy gets on a team with a legitimate quarterback who can throw the ball in his area, I know people say he doesn't win certain battles. He doesn't have much of a catch radius. I thought his catch radius was ridiculous because it was kind of like an expanded version of. I'm not comparing him to A.J. Green, but how A.J. Green would have to contort himself to get Andy Dalton's, uh, you know, more horrible throws. I mean, the, the crap I saw Jalen Strong have to try and catch, I'm thinking to myself, well, if you want to be moneyball about it, take a guy with just horrific quarterbacks who still makes catches. And that, to me, is what he is. You had to get that Andy Dalton shot in there. I, I like did. It. Yes, uh, I did. See. The thing I always say, again, going back to our grading really quickly, my theory after watching more and more last year, I think our our QB grades are going to get further and further away from some of the stats that they put up in the coming years. In other words, we might have a QB grade average with ridiculous stats, and it's because of what uh, receivers are able to do these days um, where you can you either find a guy that can win down the field on those contested catches you find, or you find a guy that can – uh, make something happen after the catch. And I think there's all sorts of these different skill sets in this draft. And Strong is that guy that I, I'm a, I agree with you. We can make those uh, downfield plays. You can make those plays with, with quarterback straight over him. He's going to bail out a lot of average quarterback throws at the NFL level. So I think that's going to be – when you combine last year's wide receiver class with what this one potentially could be, I think we're going to hit a, a, a window over these next few years where – um, average quarterbacks are going to look a lot better than they should be because of all their playmakers. Yeah. Uh, tight ends, we'll go quickly through this. It's kind of an average class at best. Is it? Is it Max Williams and everybody else? Yeah, I didn't I didn't love a whole lot from this class. Uh, Neil, Neil's a huge Nickel Leary fan because he catches the ball, probably because he doesn't wear gloves in an old-school manner, but I don't think it's an exciting class. Yeah. Uh, moving to offensive linemen, who surprised you? Who? I'm gonna, okay, I'm bringing up offensive tackles here. Um, you mentioned Andrus Pete, and we're talking about pass blocking efficiency. Uh, Lael Collins from LSU shows up really high. Andrus Pete shows up really high. Um, Eric Flowers shows up pretty high, which surprised me because I did not like his technique at all. Um, what was your overall take of the? Let's start with the tackles. Let's let's start there. What were I mean? It's a tough class 
be honest. I mean, they're, I got like Pete. I, I really don't love Pete, but he showed up physically. You know, he didn't give up a ton of pressures, but um, I don't know how often he was challenged either as far as that directions go in, in the past 12. Um, some of the guys that I know um, coaches and scouts love that I talked to didn't grade as well. Guys like DJ Humphreys from Florida, um, Jake Fisher from Oregon, two guys who were just outstanding athletes, but they didn't grade particularly well. They gave up a lot, but I think the coaches I've talked to think, hey, you know, we can we can fix this, we can fix that because they're great athletes. So I think it's a, it's an interesting class because there are productive guys like Pete, and then there are upside guys like Humphreys and and Fisher and maybe Cedric Ogboye, Ogboye, um, some of those guys that were Ogboye. Yeah. So you know, hurt or or athletic, you have that upside, but they didn't necessarily show that well. I think Pete was probably the most productive, and I think he'll certainly end up in the first round. I, w- I was surprised that Flowers grading that well, too, or, or showing up that well statistically, because I didn't particularly love him, but um, I don't think there's that top-level elite tackle, and it, it, it's going to be, you know, what are teams looking for from an upside and athleticism standpoint versus guys that are pretty productive. Um, Brandon Scherf, and I'm, you know, some people have said move him to guard. I'm kind of on the fence. What, what, what did your, because I don't see him a lot here, so I assume he was kind of average. Uh, what did your numbers show about Scherf? He, he was okay. He had a couple games. For the most part, he was okay. He had two or three really bad games in pass protection. I think Maryland was one of them. Yeah. Um, our guys internally agree with him being a guard. It's funny because we were talking about that back in September, I think, when our guy doing Iowa games said, yeah, I think Sheriff's a guard right off the bat, and the rest of the season confirmed that. So um, he agreed on that transition. I don't know that he's necessarily Zach Martin. I think everybody thinks because Zach Martin had a successful transition a year ago that a guy like Sheriff or even a guy like Whale Collins will do that this year as well. I don't know if he's going to be as good as Zach Martin, but I do see the guard transition. And just to mention Whale Collins, I loved him. I thought he was great. I mean, that guy destroyed people in the running game. The question is, he didn't have to kick step and pass protect a lot at LSU. They worked off play action so much. Um, so, yeah, he showed well as a pass blocker. I just don't know how much he really had to do it on third and long and, and more of those NFL-type situations. So I like Collins' potential, especially with what he does in the run game. Well, to me, he's Orlando Franklin. Um, he can play right tackle. He's going to get exposed a little bit. You move him inside the guard, and he's going to kill people. Oh, yeah, I I, I like that comp. I always saying if, we, if you could put Collins in Arizona, put him at right tackle, oh, and let gosh. body pull around on power, oh, that'd, be, that'd be my dream scenario, watching Collins pair with those guys. Yeah. Um, you have your top guard and pass pro is my top guard overall, Lakin Tomlinson from Duke. You have uh, Quanjo on here. Anyone, because, I mean, the guards, we kind of all know who the big guys are. Anyone stand out in a why aren't people talking more about him since? Honestly, not really. I didn't love the guard class. I think Tomlinson is the guy that stood out in both areas for us, and he's not a perfect prospect by any means. Uh, one guy that I, I have to go back and do a little bit more work on this class, one guy that I want to look at is Adam Sheed from o- Oklahoma, who, again, when I'm putting these lists together, I hadn't seen him during the season, but I said, okay, he graded well, graded well in both areas. He's 6'4", 340 pounds. I'm going to go back and give him a look. So that's a guy I still have to take a look at, but I don't love the guard class overall. Um, secretly, uh, one of our guys loves Matt Rotherham from Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and I don't He's not going to be a first-round pick or anything like that, but he was extremely good in the run game, and he's probably one of our sleeper guys that was super productive, and we say, okay, he's going to be a late-round type guy. 
let's see how he translates to the NFL because he rated extremely well. One of the things I really appreciate about PFF, and you, you guys do this week for week, is for pass rushers, and you separate it by, you know, 3-4, three, 4-3, four, four, three, both inside guys and outside guys. And, of course, that doesn't take into account your Michael Bennett's and J.J. Watts, who are, you know, inside 40 and outside 60 or whatever. Um, but you, I, I think you guys have helped turn the notion of sacks on – its ear to say that there's a lot more than sacks. There are hits and hurries too. Um, regardless of position, well, let's start with the linebackers. And obviously, Dante Fowler's on the top of everyone's list. And I think this is a guy who's going to be a lot better in the NFL when somebody just puts him outside and says go, mm-hmm. because you know he's over here, he's over there, and he's 266 pounds. He gets washed out by combo blocks inside. Just put him on the edge, and oh my God, he's going to be ridiculous. What did the stats show about him? Yeah, it was interesting because he he definitely benefited from moving around as far as, okay, he got to pass rush against this guard or pass rush against the center because Florida did so much work with him. But um, I like what you're saying as far as give him a role and let him shine because um, I don't think he has the same burst off the edge that some other guys have, but he, he wins with his hands, which I really like. And I, think that, I think winning with your hands is one of the more underrated things um, in the entire draft process because you want to see burst on tape. Then we have the Combine, which is all about athleticism and burst. I think the guys like Aaron Donald last year, who simply beat blocks, uh, they kind of get underrated a little bit. I think that's what Fowler does. He's pretty good against against the run. Um, You know, he's not perfect. Um, There's a little bit of risk with him at at that top five range. But I do like him overall as a player, and he's a productive pass rusher and pretty good against the run in our system. Well, you talked about hand usage, and this is, I've discussed this with Greg Cosell. I've discussed it with Stephen White. I've watched more than 25 pass rushers this year, and I'm, I'm just – I mean, I understand why. 20-hour rule, you can only teach so much and whatnot. I, every year, it's more and more and more. I'm writing these reports, and I'm like, can't use his hands, doesn't use his hands. Has a rip, maybe has an embryonic over, maybe can hump if he learns to. But these guys don't use their hands in college. They just don't. And it's it's amazing yeah. to me that they get anything done. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's going to be interesting as you take those notes and then go back and say, okay, all these guys that I said can't use their hands, how many of them started to in the NFL? And if it's something that you see they haven't, been able to learn, then you know, when do we start eliminating guys that can't do it and then only work off athleticism in college? Yeah. Um, again, for brevity's sake, I don't want to go through each individual pass rusher. What I want to do with you, because you and I have discussed this before, the multi-gap players, the guys who can bring versatility, and we want to start with Kevin White here, or uh, excuse me, Leonard Williams, not Kevin White. <laughs> Kevin White would be a really interesting multi-gap defender. Leonard Williams of USC. <laughs> Uh, kind of universally thought of as the best defensive player in this draft. You know, the first step quickness thing is an issue, but um, I assume when you guys charted, you also, as far as participation data, you also did, like, gap participation. Um, I I mean, I, I'm guessing he was mainly um, <clears throat> in a role as sort of a five-tech end in whatever front USC was doing. But where did he line up, and where was he most effective? Yeah, he mostly played that five-tech type role, played up you know, inside or end in three 3-4, and I think that's probably where he projects best in the NFL. I don't know that he's ever going to be that explosive pass-rushing three-tech. I could see him maybe as a base 4-3 defensive end and you know, move him around and, and use that versatility, but 
it's interesting internally because he graded extremely well in our system, but a guy like Sam Monson and some of our other guys don't love him as a pass rusher, and I know that seems to be um, a lot of analysts take now in these, these last few weeks is that for a guy that you're going to pick in the top five, I don't know how much it's going to affect the quarterback. I don't know that he's going to create enough pressure for that uh, top five pick. Again, it's not that he's going to be a bad player. It's just that maybe, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, he was a better prospect because he's probably going to be a very good run defender. Um, but I don't know how much he's going to get after the passer, um, especially in a class where we have all these edge rushers. How much do you really want to invest in London Williams? Uh, you know, as a guy that it could be a risk on on third down or you know pass first situation. So I think three four defensive ends probably going to be a good fit for him. But um, we have questions about him being a top five guy, more of a, maybe being more of a top ten to maybe middle of the first round type of player. Well, where I'd love him to go is Tennessee because they have Ray Horton, and Ray Horton will move him everywhere. And I yeah. I think with Williams, if you put him in one place too often, you get diminishing returns because people can time yeah. him. But I think if you put him up – now there's a guy, he to me is like the inverse Dante Fowler. The more you move him, the better he is. And I think if – I mean, Horton will have him, you know, doing that Lamar Houston thing or what he did, you know, with Jarrell Casey last year. Horton said, well, yeah, you're a three-tech, but I'm going to have you uh, with your hand off the ground as an end batter yeah. at 300 pounds, yeah. and it worked. I mean, I could see that, and you put him next to Jarrell Casey, and you know, watch out. Um, so, a few multi-gap guys I want to talk to you about. Danny Shelton, <coughs> obviously, he's up in my neck of the woods. I've seen a lot of him. I think it is Basie's Vince Wilfork. He's the two-gap guy who can let you one and two-gap across the line. But and I, his sack numbers were inflated. They mostly came against Eastern Washington and Hawaii. I get that. But I think you can put him as a super three-tech in a power package. I think you can put him as a five-tech in that sort of uh, super-duper Red Bryant thing Seattle did a few years back. Um, I think this is a guy who can move across a lot of places. What did your stats and your tape study tell you about him? Yeah, the more we talked about him internally, the more people just raved about Shelton and how much they loved him. And I think we're in complete agreement. Move him around because uh, one of the fears we have internally is that he's going to you know, be cast as a 350-pound zero-tech, and teams aren't going to use his versatility. So we love the fact that he can move around. He was actually a very productive pass rusher for us from a, from a grading standpoint. He also played, I think it was the second most snaps of any defensive interior player in the nation. So at 350 pounds, he played 917 snaps, I believe it was. So the people that, you know, some of our guys even internally said, yeah, he takes some plays off. He doesn't look like he's always getting after it, but... The guy was on the field for a while, yeah, for a long time. So if, if you give him 600, 700 snaps, I think you're looking at a pretty productive player all around against the run uh, as a pass rusher. We all love them. And, again, the more we rewatch the tape internally, I haven't run into any one of our analysts that said that they didn't like him. And we even have some that think he's a better overall player than Leonard Williams and potentially a better player. So um, we're big fans of Shelton overall. I think of any player in this draft class, he has the most consistent like snap-to-snap tape. Um, yeah, he's, he graded extremely well. It was he's been fun to watch for sure. What were just to cure, I mean, and I know, just tell me if something's proprietary. What were his total pressure numbers, like hits and hurries? Um, I'm actually looking at it right now. Just against Power Five, we had because it seemed to me like he got really close a lot. He had 34 pressures against Power Five. Wow. And <laughs> let me see again. Yeah, I mean it was it was good. And then, uh, yeah, so you, you're right. He had the inflated sack totals against non-power five, but he had 
10 sacks, 11 hits, and 26 hurries on the entire season on his 900, his 915 snaps. Yeah. Uh, from a grading standpoint, he was a couple ticks below Leonard Williams on our scale. And just to get back to Williams, Williams was not even the most productive pass rusher in the Pac-12 amongst interior players. You know, there were some other guys we graded higher than him, and I guess that's one of those things that we have um, as a general concern for a guy that's supposedly a lock top five pick. Well, one more uh, possible multi-gap guy I want to talk about before we move on and uh, wrap this up is uh, Eric Armstead from Oregon. And I, I don't know what to make of him. I mean, I think he's Calais Campbell later after he learns some stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think he's an end. I don't know that you can play a 6-7 guy at defensive tackle. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your usage stats and the pressure stats for him. Yeah, he wasn't very productive, and Armstead, he probably should be playing offensive tackle, but that's a whole different story. He wanted to, he wanted to play on the defense at Oregon. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. you gotta, you got to expand on that. Well, I mean, coming, out of, coming out of high school, he's 6'8", 290, whatever he is. A lot of recruiting analysts thought he was the best, one of the best offensive tackle prospects in the country. Um, but Oregon, I think, they kind of allow prospects to do what they want. You know, D'Anthony Thomas... Wanted a, they wanted him to play corner. He wanted to be an offensive player, so he played offense. Pretty sure Armstead had the choice and chose defense. But, I mean, he's built like this awesome offensive tackle. And in a, in a questionable offensive tackle class, who knows, maybe he would have ended up developing into the top guy. Um, that's all hindsight now. I think, what, again, I told you earlier, we don't know exactly what our data is going to mean, but I think the things that stand out are guys that are getting first-round hype that don't dominate in college. I think those guys are a little bit of a red flag for me. So Armstead's a guy that, at his size, probably should have dominated, and he didn't really. In fact, I think DeForest Buckner, his teammate, was a much better player overall. Uh, We'll be seeing him next year. But Armstead had three sacks, three hits, and 20 hurries on the season. So 26 total pressures. Um, An okay pass rush grade. I just think he was inconsistent game to game. And there was never a game where you looked at him and said, wow, that's a first-round pick. Um, granted, there's some upside, and he's got the size and all that stuff, but I still want one of my first-round potential guys to be dominant in college, and I just don't think we saw that enough from, from Armstead. Moving to linebackers, and one of the things that I really hate about the combine is how it can inflate or deflate a guy, and I know you know exactly who I'm talking about. It's Paul Dawson from yeah. TCU. Um, really fast guy, despite the 4-9 whatever, tremendously productive player. He is at the top of your list for run stop percentage, and he's second in pass rushing productivity. Which, because I think he can also be a really good blitzer. Um, just give me your take on Dawson overall. I love him on tape. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And not only did he lead in run stop percentage, it wasn't just a lead. He dwarfed everyone else in the nation. I mean, he, his run stop percentage was twenty three point two percent which when we compare it to what we've done in the NFL, we've never we've only had one NFL player come close to that, and it was Chris Borland last year. I think it was 22%. Um, and every, and I think Borland oh, God, actually, every Niners uh, fan just stabbed themselves again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, Niners fan. Yeah. Borland was so good last season. I mean, I was, I was amazed at how well he played. But it's, just, it's a similar type of player, and Borland's actually more athletic from a – you know, pure numbers, measurable standpoint for Dawson, but it's going to be similar where I think Borland was so much better at taking on and shedding blocks than people probably wanted to give him credit for. I think Dawson's the same way. He just he does it with his instincts, and he's just always in the right place. I mean, 
for a guy that runs four nine, you see him make plays on the other side of the field all the time. It's because he's just he's just quick. He's just there, and he sees it well before everyone else. Where you see all these other fast guys, you know, running into blocks. So I think linebacker is one of those positions where you can definitely overrate athleticism because, as we make as we joke about Ernie Sims, sometimes he was really really fast, but he was also the fastest to get blocked, right? And well, he's Dawson I mean, that's, is the opposite of that. That's really, I mean, you intimated there. What, Dawson knows how to take angles. He knows to, how to get where he needs to get, and that, that's such an underrated thing. I also love, speaking of underrated, you had uh, my guy, Zach Vigil, who wasn't even invited to the combine, the kid from Utah State. Uh, 60 run stops were the second most among draftable prospects, and he played 1,109 total snaps. And this kid was not invited to the combine. Great tape. Uh, somebody in Indy goofed up. I think he's going to be a good pro. Um, pass rushing... Outside lineman, who did you like? As far as edge rushers? Yeah. Um, they were all kind of lumped together. You know, Randy Gregory, Fowler. I thought Beasley showed as much athleticism and burst as anybody, but he didn't produce as much as I would have liked. And then our super sleeper, a guy that is not an edge rusher, doesn't look like these other edge rushers, but simply got pressure on a consistent basis, was Trey Flowers from Arkansas. Um, again, different type of player. He's more of that base defensive end type. I think he's the best run-stopping uh, edge player in the entire draft. But then he didn't flash on tape as much. But, again, when you go back and you see, okay, he was extremely productive. He had a you know, decent amount of hurries. Uh, didn't have as many stats as the other guys. But, man, he beat SEC offensive tackles every week. I think he's about one of the more underrated players in the draft. Yeah, I struggle with him a little bit on tape. Um... But moving along to cornerbacks, uh, I'm bringing this up here, and I'm being a little brief here because, again, we may have to do this again either before or after the draft because there's just, God, there's so much to talk about. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of players. There's a lot of players. So passer rating allowed, and we're talking about, again, the top five guys because, you know, you get a, a lot of – who were the best cornerbacks in consistent pass coverage against Power 5 teams? Oh, consistent pass guy. Kevin Johnson was up there. Trey Waynes was up there. Um, I don't. I still don't love this cornerback class. I think all of these guys that are in the first round mix all have their warts. I, I was amazed that Trey Waynes, what is his forty time, is better than his three cone, his, his shuttle time. Yeah. I mean that was, and you can see it on tape. He'd run deep as well as anybody. He can't change direction. So I, you know, I think all of these first round corners, guys like Wayne, guys like. Kevin Johnson, Marcus Peters, I think they all have some some warts, some issues. I think I'd have some trouble taking them up in the first round. The guy that everybody loved on tape was Troy Hill from Oregon, who I know has off-field issues but from a pure tape standpoint. It was just outstanding. Change of direction, making plays downfield, had enough speed to run with the deep routes, to play in the slot. We loved Troy Hill from Oregon, and I know nobody's really talking about him, uh, partially because of the off-field stuff, but I thought he was fun to watch, and Eric Rowe from Utah graded extremely well, even though it was his first year at cornerback, and he's not a perfect cornerback prospect, but he has that ability to play some free safety. Um, again, graded well as a corner. Um, so I think there are more intriguing second, third, fourth round guys at the cornerback class, and it's, I think it's really lacking some of that those top first round prospects. We actually were uh, we're doing Rowe as a safety. You think he's better as a safety? Uh, potentially. I mean. I, 
I, I like him as a cover two corner too, potentially where he could, I mean, he could really tackle. Um, he's a guy actually. He really stood out when he was a freshman as a safety in Utah. Every time I seemed to watch them play, he was making plays. But um, I just like his versatility. I think the fact that you could play him a corner, you can maybe cover tight ends with him. Um, and then play free safety in a pinch. I, I like the fact that he can move around. I'll be interested to see if the team, um, you know, puts him at one position or actually does try to explore that, uh, you know, that flexibility that he brings. Uh, moving finally to safeties, and this is the question. I know you guys have been dealing with this question for years. When, and I don't, I mean, you may get all 22 for college stuff at this point, but if you don't, if you're watching Draft Breakdown or whatever you're watching or you're, you're going off TV tape, and like at the SEC Network, since everyone runs the ball, you never see the safeties. Pac-12, you see this. It's funny how different conferences do their camera angles. But when you, in a general sense, first of all, do you have all 22 for all or most of these games? And second of all, how do you grade safeties on TV tape? Uh, that's a challenge. I mean, it, it, to me, though, the way we're doing it is – Essentially, great. Like I was saying before, like a zero is average in our system. For the most part, we're looking at you know action plays or plays where they're involved. And, and usually, you know, if there's a deep pass, you're going to get replays, and you're going to be able to see most of the play for the most part. Um, so we're it's mostly grading action plays and grading what we can see. Um, we do have all 22 access to various levels, you know that. You know, that we can that we can sprinkle in there, but even just from TV tape, I think it's more. Um, a lot of the views are better than people give it credit for, and usually, if there's an important point, there's a replay, and we're able to to work off that for the most part. I don't know that our safety stuff is perfect, but I do think it gives a pretty good indicator of uh, of how well guys are playing, and um, you know, it's easier to see a block safety or a guy that's you know coming up playing the run uh, rather than a free safety. But it's not like I'm not necessarily charting. Uh, false steps in coverage and certain things like that. It's more uh, plays where a guy should be involved, and for the most part, you can see and they should be involved. And it's, I mean, I think it's one of those cases where the perfect is the enemy of the good. Just because you can't do it 100% doesn't mean you should do yep. it 0%. You do it 80 until you can do it 100. You got to go somewhere. Yep. Um, so, so let's start with pass coverage. Which safeties, uh, both tape and numbers, impressed you the most? Yeah, safety is a tough position overall. I mean, like, from a coverage standpoint, Landon Collins graded well, but I don't think you're looking at him as a free safety type. He no. played well in the box, and yeah, he can do some split split field safety stuff. But yeah, he had trouble running backwards, and he also benefited from some Jeff Driscoll passes last year against Florida. So, a lot of people uh, benefited from Jeff Driscoll passes, didn't they? <laughs> a lot of people did. I mean, granted, he was making one-handed interceptions, but Driscoll, you know. Wasn't making good throws. They're either, all so. they're all going to miss him when they go to the NFL. <laughs> he was a he was a stat pattern for the defensive guys. Yeah, uh, you know Holloman did some good things with Louisville. Certainly had his stats with twelve interceptions. Um, a lot of his came in underneath coverage, which was good. He could see some instincts. Um, James wow. Sample, his teammate from Louisville, did some good things. Uh, again, I don't love the safety class, uh, and it's and it's tough to it's tough to gauge which of these guys might have that free safety type of ability. I think uh, Demarius Randall from Arizona State is an intriguing prospect because he's so fast and willing to hit that he might end up being that best, uh, one of the better free safety prospects, and he graded pretty well for us in coverage as well. Did Holloman finish last in uh, tackling efficiency? Because I don't usually say that guys are afraid of contact, but good Lord. 
Yeah, he has 13 misses. Just against Power Five, 13 missed tackles and only 36 tackles. So I think he was he was worst, the last or second to last, I think, in the draft class in, uh, in tackling efficiency. Now, do you count missed tackles as you're not even trying to tackle at all? Because I think the number might be higher. <laughs> we, need, we might need a new staff for him for, yes, avoided contact altogether. But, yes, yeah, I mean, so- if you're... You're in position to make a tackle, and you don't make it. Whether you make contact or not, yeah, we'll be. Yeah, yeah I think for the offense, you can call it the Pinkston. For defense, you can call it the Holloman. Avoiding contact altogether. <laughs> that's, that's. I'm going to run it by the guys. We might have to add that next I, year. I think it's a strong stat. I think it. it uh, I think it would be very helpful. Well, Steve uh, Palazzolo, as always, great to talk to you. And seriously, we need to do this again because I have like 45 questions in my head that we're not going to have time for. But I know you're a busy guy, and I'm a busy guy. And uh, let's definitely do this again because this is great. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we barely even scratched the surface, Doug, but it was a lot of fun. Appreciate it, and uh, yeah, let's do it again sometime. Take care, man.